Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Guide Tell All. We're Friendly Neighborhood Tour Guides here to share with you some fun and often scandalous bits of history. We are nearing the end of the year. This is our last full-length episode of 2023. I can't believe it. It's so exciting. We're so glad you're here to end off the year, cap off the year with a topic that I love. Um, But before we jump in, as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the Rebecca's. Um, hi, welcome to all of our wonderful listeners. We love you. We are grateful in this uh, end of the year season for every single one of you that listens to an episode that shouts us out, that sends us messages. We love you guys so much. Special extra holiday love to our patrons who keep the lights on and really allow us to do this podcast in addition to being full-time tour guides. So shout out to our patrons. Be sure to be checking on your patron benefits. If you are listening to this and you've never taken a tour with us, you should consider doing so. If you're in the D.C. area, you're coming to D.C., we would love to see you on a tour. Check us out at dcbyfoot.com. We've got a lot of really fun holiday tours. We do tours in the winter. That may not seem appealing, but honestly, sometimes winter tours can be great. It's not crowded out there. Uh, We have these weird little spurts of nice days. So consider joining us before the spring chaos when many, many tourists descend upon Washington, D.C. So, Rebecca, I am really, really excited about this episode. This is like our elections episode, becoming a little bit of a, a thing we do every now and then, and I really like it. Mm-hmm. Me too. I really like it too. We're going to talk about a World's Fair. So the good companion episode, the best companion episode to this would be the 1893 Chicago World's Fair episode that we did quite a while ago. This is after that, both in terms of our time and real lifetime. But this is the the World's Fair in 1904, which was in St. Louis, Missouri. The best World's Fair because it comes with a song. There's a song. Please There's a sing. song. And it actually sing. has a holiday tie. And we'll get to that. There we go. Um, Becca's going to sing later. So stay tuned for that. I, I definitely will not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so technically, it is called the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, which right away is a whole bunch of things. It is held in St. Louis in 1904. And if you're real eagle-eyed and up with the histories, you may know that the it's supposed to be on the centennial of the Louisiana Purchase when we purchased a whole bunch of land from Napoleon and basically doubled the size of the United States. However, that purchase actually happened in 1803, whereas this exposition happens in 1904. So it is not actually the 100th anniversary it's the 101st but whatever who cares to be fair i think they had a good reason to push it back a little bit because mounting an event of the scale in the early 20th century is a pretty big deal they don't have a lot of the tech that we might use today to plan a big conference or exhibition or fair and there was a lot of interest in participating so by delaying the start of the fair past the centennial they were actually able to get more participants more inventors more countries more attendees so it's probably a good call but yeah it is not technically the centennial anymore yes and this is one of those great episodes there's going to be a lot of people that are cool that kind of intersect with this 
people we have talked about on the pod and people we have not but could talk about on the pod. So there's a lot of intersection. These world fairs, just like the Chicago World's Fair, tend to be this meeting place of all kinds of cool, interesting people, people who are famous at the time, people who aren't famous yet, but will be, and just generally interesting things. So there's a lot going on. There's also the Olympics happen in the middle of the World's Fair, and we'll talk about that. So it's crazy town. It is officially opened on April 30th, and it goes through December 1st, 1904. And the fair is massive. It's a 1,200-acre site, which is 4.9 square kilometers, almost two square miles. So, like, gigantic. Everything is enormous. There's 1,500 buildings connected by some 75 miles of roads and walkway. It was said to be that it was impossible to give a hurry, even a hurried glance at everything in less than a week's time. So the Palace of Agriculture alone is like 20 acres. It's enormous. There's participation from 60 different countries. 43 of the then 45 United States are going to have participation. There's at the end of all of this, 19.7 million attendees, which is gigantic. It's a big growth for St. Louis. It's just, it brings a lot of people, a lot of interest, and it's a really fascinating intersection of a lot of different things. And it's cool, but there's also a darker side. So there's like an awful lot to talk about uh, with this World's Fair. It also introduces, or at least popularizes, several very cool things that we still use today. The architect of all of this was not, as popularly said, is people think it's Frederick Law Olmsted who does design a good part of the Chicago World's Fair, but it is not Frederick Law Olmsted. He, in fact, was dead the year before the fair even opened, so it, it was not him. It was a guy named George Kessler who did, in fact, study and work for Frederick Law Olmsted. So there is a connection there. And Olmsted's sons advise part of the fair and they're kind of involved in a tangential part. But George Kessler is the main architect. It is, like I said, it's a gigantic undertaking. And there's a combination of like a mall, a carnival, a food court, an amusement park. There's part of it's a museum. Like it's just a whole mess of things that is designed to show off. Like this is our world's fair where, you know, there's a lot of new and emerging technology. This is the end of the Gilded Age. There's a lot of fabulous wealth. We're trying to show off how really great and cool the United States is. And so we're going to like go kind of all in and showing off. So there's a few technological pieces that I want to at least mention. And then we'll talk about some food. <laughs> yeah, let me just mention briefly to George Kessler, who is not just really remembered as an architect today, but really as an urban planner. And it's sort of a shame that Kessler's contributions to this get sort of overshadowed by this longstanding myth about Olmsted being sort of the brains or genius behind this, because what Kessler will do with the Chicago World's Fair is really set up a plan that will be emulated by many emerging U.S. cities in the early 20th century. This idea of the city beautiful, of having these beautiful public spaces. Now, a lot of these ideas, of course, mimic and echo what Olmsted was doing with landscape architecture up and down the East Coast on that Olmsted Sons would continue on. But Kessler really is not just an architect, but he really is sort of this pioneer in the idea of city planning in the United States that as we're booming at the cusp of the 20th century and more and more cities are developing, they're developing around emerging technologies, that there's a way to make cities beautiful and functional and to really evoke civic pride. I always like to note that in 1904, the U.S. is still an emerging world power. We're not quite the superpower we're going to be as the world wars come about. And so the way our cities look as there's increased tourism at the cusp and beginning of the 20th century is important. And so Kessler's somebody who gets overshadowed despite the fact that he is behind not just this World Fair, but the city plan of a number of important cities, particularly in the Midwest. So I just like to give Kessler a little bit of his flowers here because Olmsted, while very significant and certainly an inspiration and influence for Kessler, this is his work. 
And this is going to have a ripple effect through the rest mm -hmm. of the 19-teens and 20s in terms of how American cities look, how they're designed. And again, a whole sort of generation of architects who work on this. You know, it's not like Kessler designed every single one of these 1,500 buildings. There's a lot of other architects that contribute, and many of them are going to be inspired by Kessler's vision for what a beautiful American city can look like. So in many ways, he's this pioneering urban planner as well. So shout out to George Kessler and we love Frederick Law Olmsted, but this was not him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So some technology, the wireless telephone. Yay. We um, love that. We love, we love, we love the phone. We love the phone. Basically, Alexander Graham Bell has figured out a way to transmit sound waves into light waves and then a receiver that will convert them back into sound waves. I don't understand most of what I just said, but basically this is going to be the forerunner of technology that will later create the radio. An early fax machine, basically the same kind of technology, sending electrical impulses, and then there was a receiving device that can recreate the drawing on a piece of paper. So that's kind of cool. The x-ray machine, which we all have heard of and been subjected to when we go to the dentist. This has its public debut at this World's Fair. The x-rays were not especially new. They had been discovered about 10 years prior by a German scientist, but this is going to be the first time they've basically managed to harness this technology and perfect it, and they're going to successfully show it to the public. There's also an infant incubator which is super cool. Basically for babies to increase the life expectancy of premature babies. Mm. The incubators are going to be created and displayed at several other world's fairs, but this is again, perfected this technology. And in fact, what they're going to set up, which is a little weird, but they set up 24 incubators and they put babies in them and there's an entrance fee. So it's in this hall and you pay 25 cents and you can look at these babies in incubators as like an exhibit like this is part of what people paid to see it doesn't end great uh the sanitary conditions aren't super great and some of the babies die of illness because that's what happens when babies are exposed to like disease but the technology of incubators has since been expanded on quite a bit uh electric streetcars this is a very relatively novel concept street railways are not but electric streetcars are new also the personal automobile which we do love very much the automobile display contains over 140 models powered by steam gasoline and electricity we went with one of those three things <laughs> <laughs> i love that though because it's sort of that we're at for this technology it's still so emerging in 1904 that's sort of the sense of what's going to be the best what can scale this predates the production of the Model T by a couple of years, by about four years. So um, this really is, people want a car and they know that cars are out there and people are playing around with them, but we haven't really figured out how are people actually going to own a personal automobile and how's it going to work long-term. And also an airplane. This is an airship contest. They have an airship contest. We are at this time less than a year out from Kitty Hawk when the Wright brothers basically invented an airship. So this is like literally brand new technology. And there is, this contest does witness the first dirigible, public dirigible flight. It's a big event in the history of aviation, sort of introducing this emerging technology to the world and getting people sort of on board with how this is going to evolve in the future. So there's a lot kind of going on. And there's also a lot of new foods. We love food here at Tour Guide Tell All. We're kind of obsessed with food, both that guy and myself. We do indeed. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of food claims, some of which are true and some of which are, let's just say exaggerated, I think. For example, the popular claim is that this fair sees the invention of the ice cream cone. Now, ice cream is not new, but the cone part is. And it has widely been debunked that it is believed that this is not invented at the fair, but in fact, popularized at the fair. And so that seems to be true of a lot of different food items, that this sort of brings these food items into the public consciousness. There's also claims that are more dubious, like the hamburger and the hot dog are both invented at the fair. That seems to be untrue, although they're going to be sort of popularized and really solidified in the American consciousness as being American foods at this fair. Peanut butter, iced tea, cotton candy. Same kind of idea. However, Dr. Pepper, 
Seven Up, and Puffed Wheat were all introduced to a national audience at this fair. All of which are still with us, which is very exciting. There is a daughter of slaves named Annie Fisher who brings beaten biscuits, which are already famous in her hometown of Columbia, Missouri. And she wins a gold medal. And in fact, uh, William Howard Taft enjoys them later on when he comes to Missouri. So this is a, a ba- there's a, a biscuit claim happening here. Toasted ravioli, gooey butter cake, which we love, also apparently invented. So there's a lot of food going on. And essentially, this is like a food court, really America's first food hall. (laughs) And so you can go around and sample different things, some of which you'll have heard about and some of which you haven't. A lot of this is to try to showcase to local Midwestern food, sort of food that not in the entire country has been exposed to. This is an era before a lot of people have been able to travel widely around the country. And this is going to expose people to different foods than the regional food that they're necessarily used to. Uh, And so that's sort of, I think, how you get the claim that some of these foods have been popularized at the fair. Hamburgers had existed. It's not particularly novel to put a meat patty between two two types of bread. But the idea that this regional sort of delicacy gets a wider audience, I think, is sort of where this is going to come from. Similarly, peanut butter, peanuts are pretty well known. But in the area before this, it's confined to the South. It's more a Southern delicacy. Now, peanut butter gets a more wider usage. So you're seeing, I think, more than the invention, what's more important, and I think in some ways more interesting, is you're seeing the spread of a lot of different regional cuisines becoming more nationalized. Yeah, and it's a chance for these specific brands that are, I'll use Dr. Pepper as an example. Dr. Pepper is invented by a pharmacist in Waco, Texas, and had existed for several years before the World's Fair, but primarily bought and sold in Waco and the surrounding area by bringing it to the World's Fair. You can attract businessmen, investors, you can expand your business, you can get national name recognition. So this is an opportunity for the food industry, which is pretty divided into very tight little regional and local brands really looking at a chance to expand and break out as a nationwide company. And so there's a lot of companies that even though they weren't founded specifically to bring a food to the World's Fair, are using the World's Fair as sort of the springboard to get money, to get capital and grow their operations. Sort of an exciting time to see also the intersection of we're increasingly in the 20th century moving from localized businesses and localized communities to being able to spread something across the United States, right? The technology is getting there and the interest is getting there. So it really is like when you look at all the different companies and brands that are represented at the fair, it's really amazing to see how many are going to springboard out of this and be able to take this money and capital and notoriety and go on a larger scale. And obviously biased because Dr. Pepper is awesome. So I think that's the coolest thing at the World's Fair. I just really wanted to mention to the sort of idea of the look of the World's Fair and the buildings, much like with the Chicago World's Fair, a lot of this was meant to be temporary. So there's not a lot of the existing structures still standing today. However, one of the buildings, uh, the Palace of Fine Arts, was designed by an architect named Cass. Gilbert. Gilbert has the DC connection in that he was the architect of the United States Supreme Court building. Now the Supreme Court building is going to come, oh, uh, about 25 years after this, 30 years after this. And that'll be the last building Cass Gilbert designs. But Gilbert's Palace of Fine Arts is one of the few buildings that was meant to be permanent and still standing today in St. Louis. Also at the same time as this World's Fair, the Washington University of St. Louis is being constructed. And so the growth of the actual physical campus of the university is happening at the same time as the fair and the two end up being very integrated. And in fact, Kessler kind of wanted the fair to take precedence over any permanent university structures and university officials, to their credit, really sort of pushed back and made sure that what was being constructed for the university on the university grounds would be permanent. So there is a little piece of the fair still living at the university today. But imagine St. Louis had been a port city, a trade city, you know, part of why the city in the Midwest had thrived was because of the river and ports. So they integrated in a lot of that into the fair. So you weren't just exploring all of this by foot, you could get onto boats, 
boats uh, that were taking you through various canals and rivers and into the port. They were building new bridges, which is still a really big deal at this time. These larger scale suspension bridges in particular are architectural and engineering wonders at the time. So the scale of this is just something that people would have shown up and been just absolutely blown away. You would have had the electricity, you would have had these beautiful buildings, you would have been on these boats traveling around. And as Rebecca said, even in a week, you couldn't have glimpsed everything that was part of this. You couldn't have sampled all the food, you couldn't have seen all the exhibits. So just trying to illustrate the scale of this, which is hard to imagine today because you can't go and look at it, so much of it is gone, but just absolutely huge. And that doesn't mean that it's all it's all good. No. No. Uh, so there is a darker side to this. This is, so 1904 is a moment, sort of we're in the midst of the imperial age. The, this is the height of American imperialism, as well as imperialism in a bunch of other places around the world. And the United States is at this time really trying to make its bones on the world stage in a big way, emerge, become a power player in like world affairs. And this is one of the ways in which we're announcing to the wider world that like, hey, we're coming, like we're cool and we know all these cool things. And so there's a lot of promotion of American culture, which is to say white, mostly Anglo-Saxon culture and how sophisticated we are. And to do that, there's going to be uh, the contrast between people from other places around the world, and they're going to have people on display, almost like a human zoo in a, in a real way. And there's several indigenous people from different places around the world. They're going to be put on display and labeled as primitive, which is so gross, but it's at a time when that's how the world was seen. That's how the United States is seen. We are civilization. We're forward motion. We are emerging. We are becoming. We can do all of these cool and interesting things as opposed to the more primitive, darker past. And there's a huge racist element here. This is a really a gross display of racism, of imperialism, of colonialism, but we have just had a war. The United States has just had a war a few years prior, the Spanish-American War, and we have been given control of Guam, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico. So we're going to bring people, indigenous people, from these places and literally put them on display at the zoo, or at the human zoo, basically human zoo at this fair. Over 1,100 Filipinos are on display. They are going to bring Native Americans, such as Apaches from the Southwest, Native Filipinos, the Igorot from the Philippines, literally labeled as primitive. It's really gross. People have been trafficked to come to this exhibit. Some do not survive. They're not treated particularly well. The organizers are going to choreograph ethnographic displays. It's really, they have Native Alaskans are going to come down and they're, they have a woman display basket weaving. In fact, her work is curated by the Smithsonian. There's even several uh, Native American schools so there's a particularly one called the Fort Shaw Indian School. They basically, and when you read in Indian boarding school, what you really should be reading here is assimilation schools. These are schools where Native American children are taken and essentially assimilated as white. They are uh, discouraged from speaking their native language uh, and practicing their native religious beliefs and customs and essentially encouraged to be white American, given American, Americanized, Anglicized names. And so they're brought to the World's Fair as well. They have games, athletic contests, and things like that. The purpose of this fair is to promote sort of our United States role as a, a, a big imperial power. And part of that is drawing the direct contrast with societies that we need to be imperial over, essentially. Well, and certainly president at the time is Theodore Roosevelt. He's received some criticism from his imperial actions and, and criticism from some that just say, look, we're not big enough or wealthy enough to be an imperial power. Why are we trying? And there is an attempt here to say, look, what, what, look, we can go 
we can conquer, we can spread American ideals other places. We have superiority both racially and sort of intellectually and culturally. And so there is a political aspect to this as well to justify the Spanish-American War, to justify America's expansion into a more imperialist mindset. So there is a political element to this as well, that there is an opportunity here to show support for the Roosevelt push towards expanding American power. And frankly, this ties into some of the ideas that come from the Louisiana Purchase, that come from the idea of America expanding itself, this idea of manifest destiny that comes in the middle of the 19th century, that we are the the civilization that is going to conquer this continent and then the world. And so um, it's rooted in these ideas that very much, I think, begin with our purchase of a third of what becomes the United States. But it's it's tricky, I think, to reflect on today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's very explicit what the anthropologists and the organizers are trying to do here. They are truly trying to show essentially an evolution of of mankind and we're at the top, period. And this is in an era where Darwinism and social Darwinism are thriving mm-hmm. as well as eugenics. And so these are um, reflections of that. There is an exhibit of um, particularly one man in particular, his name is Oda Benga. He was a, from what's now the Congo and he was a, a pygmy. And he and several of his fellow tribesmen were brought to the fair, treated not particularly uh, well, but he has, he's young. He has a relatively amiable personality. So he's kind of has charisma and sort of responds to the crowd. They learn to charge for photos. Turns out Oda Benga has, there's an account that he's a cannibal, which may or may not have been true, but he had had his teeth filed to sharp points in his youth as part of a, a ritual. And he would charge money for his smile in the midst of this. And it's not, they were perceived as savages, literally controlled as savages. And it doesn't say particularly good things about not only the fair, but also the people who like paid to see like a sideshow. And this is, there's a real freak show element to this. That's really just hard to swallow today. And I want to just mention, cause you, you mentioned sort of the sideshow element, the fairs, at the time, don't see themselves as entertainment. They see themselves right. as education. And that's what's so insidious about this, that this is being presented as a very objective, scientific event, that this is where you're coming to learn about these cultures. And yet the way in which this is being framed is deeply problematic and racist. And Otabenga is literally put in a cage with mm-hmm. an ape. This is to show, right, how close they are evolutionarily and we're so far removed. He's given a bow and arrow, which... To his credit, he starts shooting at visitors um, when they bother him. And, you know, same, I understand that. It does not go well for Otabenga beyond the World's Fair, um, just as a little spoiler, which isn't too surprising. But the aspect of this feels like a carnival, like a freak show, like a sideshow. But the thing that really is insidious is that it's all being presented very much with the veneer of this is, this is science. This is the best, the best minds in America. Mm-hmm are putting this on to educate our visitors. And so they see it as education. Um, Yes. Disingenuous, but. Yeah, it's, oh, it's so, yeah. The educational aspect of it and like the serious anthropological element to it is just, it's by any modern standard, really, really gross and unfortunate. There's even, so for example, they even recreate the Anglo-Boer War, which had just happened a few years prior in what's now South Africa. And you pay money as a fairgoer to see the recreation of the second Boer War. They reenact it twice a day. It takes two to three hours and includes 600 veteran soldiers basically fighting both sides of the war. At the conclusion, the Boer general will escapes on horseback, leaping from a height of 35 feet into a pool of water. So it's this basically this twice a day concession where you pay money. And it in fact turns out to be the highest concession, the largest concession of the fair. People pay money in droves to see the recreation of this war. And of course, the war is the Anglo-Boer War. The Anglos win. And so it's the essentially the triumph of British imperialism, Western culture over savages, quote unquote. There's even a bullfight 
or supposed to be one, uh, they actually end up canceling the bullfight because there is a law in Missouri against bullfighting. The governor at the time, Alexander Monroe Dockery, orders the police to halt the bullfight and disgruntled spectators demand refunds and eventually basically start start throwing stones when they're not given their refunds. So it becomes a big deal. They light on fire the ticket booth. It's kind of a big thing. Uh, so the, the fair is a, there's a lot kind of going on. There are a lot of spectacular attendees. Theodore Roosevelt, president of the United States, he opens the fair by telegraph, but doesn't attend until later on. He is up for re-election in the fall of 1904, and he feels that his attendance at the fair would be political. I don't, <laughs> he doesn't want to use the fair for political purposes, and so just doesn't go. <laughs> Which is strange, but okay. You know, fine. He does eventually go, though, uh, and his daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who is a much favored on this pod, very, very, a much friend of the pod, yes, uh, we, she's going to make a cameo in a little bit. Um, also, John Philip Sousa, he actually composes music to perform, band performs on opening day. Thomas Edison claims to have attended. Geronimo was actually there quite often. He was kind of on display. Scott Joplin wrote a song called The Cascades, specifically for uh, the fair. Uh, Helen Keller talked about her on a pod. She was there. She had just graduated from Harvard, uh, and she gives a lecture. There is uh, a man named J.T. Stinson, who you probably have not heard of, but I guarantee you you've heard of the phrase that he coined at the fair, which is, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. <laughs> He was a fruit specialist. I don't know how you get to be a fruit specialist, but I want to do that in my next life. But he gives a lecture about fruit and how great it is for him. There is a pipe organ, a really large and fantastic pipe organ that eventually gets purchased by Wanamakers and brought to Philadelphia. It is actually still in the store. It's a Macy's today, but it still works. And around this time of year, in fact, they do holiday concerts where they light up part of the store and the old organ still works. So part of the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair resides permanently in Philadelphia, of all places. Grover Cleveland former president of the United States, he attends. A man named Henri Poincaré gave a lecture about mathematics in which he speculated about a special relativity. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds hmm. like something that will come up again later. Sounds like something that someone else will run with. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, T.S. Eliot, Max Weber, Jack Daniel. Yes, that Jack Daniel. He's there. There is novelist Kate Chopin. In fact, she is a local to St. Louis, purchases like a, a pass, a season ticket, and she visits on one of the hottest days of the year, suffers a brain hemorrhage and dies because of how hot it was. So there's a lot of kind of cool people. The Sundance Kid, in fact, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Sundance Kid actually comes <laughs> to the fair, which is kind of cool. So there's a lot of cool attendees, some of which we have done literally whole podcasts on <laughs> and some of which we could later do whole podcasts on. And seems like the crossroads of everybody who's anybody at that time, presidents of the United States, thought leaders, really interesting and cool people. So there's a lot of kind of things going on. Very much like the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, most of the buildings were temporary and have not survived and were not intended to survive. So there actually is no they're they're not made with any material that's supposed to last. They're essentially made out of plaster or a similar something similar to plaster, so very much meant to be temporary. One of the few things that still exists is the St. Louis Art Museum. The main pavilion still exists. There's a fight cage from the zoo, which is still there's an aviary which is also still in St. Louis. Some things are transported to different places, like the the house that Sweden paid for. I uh, was moved to a different area and reconstructed in Kansas for whatever reason, unclear why. There's the, the state of Maine building, which was a rustic cabin. It's transported to Point Lookout, Missouri, uh, where it 
was there for quite a while. So there's a lot of things that are little snatches of it here and there, but by and large, there was not much of this was, this wasn't intended to be like a long-term permanent exhibit. Now, in the middle of all of this nonsense, in the middle of this craziness, like literally smack dab in the middle of a world's fair, someone decides, hey, you know what would be even more fun? Let's have an Olympic Games. <laughs> Just throw that in there for the lols. It'll be great. This is only the third Olympics. So when we think of the Olympics today, we think of this gigantic, like two plus weeks thing. They build all kinds of buildings. It's a massive endeavor. That hasn't really, the Olympics haven't evolved to that yet. This is the first American Olympics. And it's only going to be five days, August 29th to September 3rd. So it's right in the middle of the fair. And at this point, there's only the Summer Olympics that the Winter Olympics don't even evolve for a few more years. But because it's in the United States, there's not a lot of participation from countries that aren't the United States. Cost travel, basically how far it is. Very few foreign athletes who aren't either Canadian or Mexican or from like an easy travel distance to St. Louis are going to participate. In fact, out of 650 athletes, only 62 of them are not American. So not exactly the international spirit of which we think of the Olympics. No, not at all. They don't have like the big parade of nations was pretty short. You know, um, they don't have like a lot of participation. The medal count is very skewed because no one else is there. In fact, even the creator of the modern Olympics, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, he doesn't come over for it. He's like, yeah, whatever. This isn't a big deal. This is, however, the very first Olympics with the three medal format. So gold, silver, and bronze. Isn't that exciting? I love that. They debut several sports, including boxing, dumbbells, decathlon, freestyle wrestling. There is one man, an American gymnast, George Iser, wins six medals despite having a wooden leg. There is the one man, Frank Kugler, remains the only athlete to this day to win gold in three sports. Wrestling, weightlifting, both of which are still with us, and tug of war, which is a a sport that they had a medal in, which is amazing to me. They get rid of tug of war pretty quick in the Olympics. But imagine a bunch of people literally tugging a rope (laughs) and one wins. It's interesting. The marathon, though is what's really crazy here. So they have a marathon and it is such a cluster that they actually almost eliminate the marathon from Olympic competition entirely. Like this almost becomes the last marathon in the Olympics because it is such a nightmare. So for starters, this is the end of August when it's very hot and humid. So right off the bat, this ain't great. (laughs) And they also, the marathon starts at three o'clock in the afternoon, 3.03 to be exact, which is the hottest part of the day. So they're having this on a hot day. It's also the middle of the afternoon when it's hottest. And the course, one fair official called it the most difficult a human being was ever asked to run over. So that's good. There were seven hills some up to 300 feet high with a big, long ascents. They're brutal. And it's not a defined course. So today, when you see a marathon, even if it's a city marathon like Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, they block off the course so that there are no cars <laughs> or trains or wagons or people walking their dog. Like you can't walk down the street of the New York Marathon with your dog because you might interfere with the runners, right? So that has not happened in this in this marathon. So they're dodging traffic and they're dodging all kinds of just spectators and delivery wagons. It's also, they're kicking up dust because the roads aren't always paved or at least they're not paved in all areas here. So there's dust kicking up. So add hot day plus the middle of the day plus dust. And what do you get, Bega? Nothing good. You get thirsty. (laughs) That's what you get. And there's only two places you could get fresh water, both of which are before you get to the 13 mile mark. So before you get to halfway. So basically the back half of the marathon, when you are tiredest and hottest and thirstiest, 
There is no water. And in fact, this is deliberate. This is the craziest thing. One of the race organizers wants to test the effects of purposeful dehydration. So they're deliberately starving these poor runners of water, which is nuts. There's also cars driving alongside the runners, basically with physicians and coaches and things like that. This is also kicking up dust. It's insane. More dust. Jeez. Another man named Fred Lortz supposedly won. Although how could you tell? (laughs) Although how could you tell? And there was a big to-do at the end. And he keeps running. He at one point apparently had taken an automobile ride, but he basically keeps running and finished just under three hours. The crowd starts cheering and the president's daughter, Alice Roosevelt, is on hand to give the winning wreath. She's going to crown the winner. And she starts, she's about to place the, the wreath on his head and give him the gold medal when a witness yells that he's an imposter and has not actually run the whole race. So basically he it had cramps, which sidelined him for a while and then gets in an automobile for a few of the miles <laughs> uh, and then just kind of take off. So he does not win. So Alice Roosevelt does not give this guy the winning gold medal. It gets crazier. The actual winner is the guy named Thomas Hicks, who was given strychnine and egg whites. He <laughs> is hallucinating by this time because it's hot and he's dehydrated. And also, I can't imagine the strychnine is any good for dehydration, right? I don't know. It doesn't sound great. Um, he's like basically limp. He's being helped to run by his trainers. He's given more strychnine and egg whites. Good times. They fetch warm water, which is probably good, right. but also warm, so bad. He appears to revive and he's running. But he's like barely, like, it looks like he's not really with it. He starts to hallucinate. He's begging to lie down. He's given brandy and more egg whites. This poor man. He basically takes him over an hour after he finishes to feel well enough to leave the race grounds. He lost eight pounds running this race. But he does apparently win, which is... Sort of a poison. Although I guess there could be an argument made for doping here. Right? (laughs) I just, you know, I I find this story, I mean, so fascinating because here we are with this fair trying to promote ourselves as Mm -hmm. this civilized, sophisticated, scientific culture and civilization. And yet this is so barbaric and cruel and like, I don't think you have to be a genius, even in 1904, to know that trying to force people to run whatever it is, 23 miles or 26.5 miles, whatever craziness a marathon is, without water is like a bad idea. Um, and in the hottest part of the day and in the hottest part of the year, like it's just torturous. It just seems like such a bad idea. And we're trying to s- celebrate how sophisticated we are. And we're giving somebody strychnine and egg whites. Like it just... I, yeah. Oh. And the idea that you're using, like the real insidious thing for me reading about this was that they're using this as an experiment to test how the human body reacts when deliberately dehydrated. It's, it, that's not just cruel. That's like inhumane. You're deliberately tested without people's knowledge. Like that's got to violate some kind of medical ethics. I'm not an expert in that either, but like, that's not good. Nothing, nothing good. Yeah. And so you can kind of see why this is such a mess that they almost get rid of the idea of the marathon entirely. Like you can kind of see like, well, maybe this isn't such a good plan. And also like human beings really, I have, I object to marathons generally. Human beings just were not meant to run 26 miles at once. Like it's just not right. Apologies to our patrons and listeners who run marathons because I know there's at least you're a cooler of you. than me. Yes, I can't imagine why. I just, but it don't it don't seem don't natural. Seem natural. <laughs> to me. Also, don't take strychnine when you run a marathon. Yeah, please don't. I mean, maybe the egg whites or some protein <sighs> there, but seems bad. 
I wanted to touch on kind of another, we mentioned Cass Gilbert, who has the DC connection, but I wanted to touch on another DC connection with this World's Fair, which is the Blue Whale. So the Smithsonian Institution, which at this point is a fairly august, respected organization. It has existed at this point for 60 years, um, almost 60 years. And so it is really the preeminent scientific institution in the United States. And they are going to, to participate in the World's Fair. And they think the best way to do this is to make the world's first full cast of a blue whale. They argue that this would be not just, you know, the first of a blue whale, but essentially the first full scale cast of the largest animal in existence. And this would really showcase U.S. research and scientific endeavors. So it would really show us at the forefront of this. Now, um, <laughs> I don't know if I need to tell all you this, but trying to get a cast of a blue whale is not an easy task because the first thing you have to do is you have to get a blue whale. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know... Uh, there, I guess there were more then than there are now, but it's not easy. They're biggins. So, of course, museum staff basically goes to Newfoundland, where there's a huge whaling community and whaling experts. And they are going to spend two months trying to find basically the perfect specimen, which they do. It's huge. And their idea is that they are going to make as much of this cast from the real animal. Mm -hmm. But here's a little fun fact. Whales decompose pretty quickly. Yeah. They're not meant to be out of the water for any period of time. And so they are literally working 24 hours. I mean, they are working nonstop with this plaster mold. They're soaking it, um, soaking the whale. They're doing this all along the waterfront so that they can keep kind of using whale. But they're doing just buckets of plaster of Paris and burlap. And they're doing this while the whale is decomposing. <laughs> so shout out to these guys who did what I think might be the grossest job. That must have smelled so fragrant prepping for this fair. Now they start basically from the bottom up because the head decomposes slowest because there's a little bit more going on up there, but it takes them a couple of days, uh, several days. Um, there's not a, full, a good account of exactly how long it takes, but again, they're working basically 24 hours a day. They're doing this outside. And as you said, the smell, the condition, pretty, mm. pretty gross, pretty intense. Here's the thing. They basically do this entire mold. They also preserve the entire skeleton. And all of this is put on display. This is a really, really big deal. Assembled to be transported. There was no way they could transport it safely in one piece. So they basically take it apart once it's done, transport it, and then put it back together in St. Louis. It is on display there. It was considered one of the most striking objects of the fair. And it belonged to the Smithsonian. So it came back and it was displayed inside the Arts and Industries building. So that's the building just alongside the Smithsonian Castle on the National Mall. And then in 1910, and what was then the U.S. National Museum, now we know it, of course, is our National Museum of Natural History, it was transported there. This was like the signature piece of the Smithsonian, really for about the next 50 years. And if you go to the Smithsonian today, it's not currently on view, but we have plaster um, casts of other whales, including right now a living whale named Phoenix, who the Smithsonian also tracks as part of its sort of whale research. But I just, I guess, shout out to the Smithsonian crew back in 1903 and 1904 that had this idea, but the actual task of creating a cast of an actual blue whale which is massive. Just to clarify, the Smithsonian has a cast of a whale on display. The actual whale that it's based on is still living and in, in the North Atlantic. Yes, 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 yes. We do not so, have a live whale. In the Smithsonian. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, to be clear, not a live whale. Um, but that that this blue whale would be the first major whale cast that they do, but certainly not the last. So I just wanted to just shout that out to the Smithsonian. I was really trying to, in preparation for this, try to understand the logistics of it. And then I was getting into the weeds on the process of how we were doing this. But it basically <laughs> is them standing on the shore and just like dumping buckets of water and then plaster of Paris and just trying to get it all smushed down and hardened as quickly as possible. And yeah, that does not seem like a fun job. If I If I had gone to science school and I had my my PhD in Wales, and this is what I was asked to do. I don't know if I'd be thrilled. Yeah, I would be a big no for me. Yep. And then um, I think the most important cultural legacy of this fair, in my opinion, is that it has a song 
which I think a lot of you already might know, the song is literally called Meet Me in St. Louis because it's all like, hey, meet me in St. Louis, meet me at the fair. It's a big promotional song. It's very catchy. And it becomes the centerpiece of, I think, one of the greatest movies ever made, which is also called Meet Me in St. Louis, 1944, which is 40 years after the World's Fair. So imagine there were people who were watching this film who had experienced the World's Fair, who had visited the World's yeah. Fair. And think of all that's changed in the world in those 40 years. The airplane is now the centerpiece of World War II. They had just started with a telephone, and now people are, by 44, you're sitting in a movie theater and watching a talking colored it's film. Insane. That's crazy um, how, how much is kicked off. And it's very much... For those who haven't seen the film, it's excellent, but it's very much an exercise in nostalgia. It's America in the midst of World War II, sort of going back and romanticizing this moment when we were on the cusp of becoming a world power. By 44, we are the dominant world power. We're trying to win this war. It follows one family, the Smith family, through four seasons. And the reason it's so seasonally appropriate is this is the movie that the song Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is written for. It's sung by Judy Garland in the beautiful red velvet dress yeah. to a crying Margaret O'Brien. It is one of my all-time favorite Christmas moments. I like to watch Meet Me in St. Louis in the Christmas time, in the Christmas season because of it. And I am an adamant believer in the original lyrics of Meet Me or in uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, where we muddle through somehow. We do not hang a shining star upon the highest bow in my family. <laughs> we muddle through somehow, which it's rarer and rarer to find people singing the original version, which actually the original original lyrics were deemed too depressing for the film and the songwriters had to cheer it up a little bit but it is a little bit of a melancholy song but if you if you go onto youtube we'll drop it in the show notes the song meet me in st louis that they sing in this film was the 1904 song that was written to promote the fair and people were singing it at the fair which i think is just really fun that is cool and so the World's Fair in St. Louis was a big, just what it was meant to do. It brings a lot of people together. It exposes people to different cultures, different places, different things, different foods. Clearly, it really 19, almost 20 million visitors. That's insane. This is really the last World's Fair of its type before World War One kind of ends all fun. And it's, you know, a really big showcase for the United States, our technology, uh, our civilization, our sort of our emergence on the world stage. So it's a really big and important moment, intersection of a lot of different and cool things and neat people. And so that's kind of the, the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. So thanks for coming along with us. I can't believe it. It's the last full length episode of the year. I know it's crazy. Next time you hear our voices, unless you are a patron, in which case you will hear our voices again, you will be, it'll be 2024 which is like, that's a thing that's possible. And we're going to talk about some, uh, we got some murder coming up in January. So get ready for that. Get yourself on board. It's going to be good times. And thanks. Have a wonderful holiday season and uh, happy new year. We'll see you next year. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye.